0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, stop us if you've heard this before, the IRS has modernizing problems. Plus, the government's satisfaction index is up, but still not what it should be. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Department of the Navy's commitment to being a data-centric organization. That's now in question. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks elevated the idea of data-centric more than 18 months ago. But a recent Navy decision to downgrade its chief data officer has sparked concerns about the Navy's short-term information management efforts. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller covers this development, and he joins me now. Jason, there's some brand new breaking news on this whole CDO data centric front, isn't there?
2: There is, Tom. In fact, we've learned that Aaron Weiss, the Department of Navy's Chief Information Officer, is leaving after more than three years. We've learned through uh, we've obtained the email he sent internal staff that his last day will be March 17th. Now, uh, Mr. Weiss has been in that position, as I said, since uh, about 2019, and he's made a huge, huge impact on the Navy, really modernizing their infrastructure, modernizing their efforts, bringing in new technology really to make data this centerpiece of everything they're going to do, which is why the other news we're going to talk about, Tom, is is a little strange. It, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense.
1: Right. And that news is the moving of the Navy's chief data officer kind of down a notch in, in organizational civilian ranking.
2: Absolutely. And what we've learned is that what the Navy decided to do is to eliminate the CDO role as a senior executive service position, an SES. Now, they still, they say, will have a CDO role, somebody who will fit into the roles and responsibilities. They have an acting CDO who's what they call an HQE, a highly qualified expert, but they are not an SES. And what's interesting, Tom, here is for years and since since 2019, when Tom Sasala took over that role, he's been in SES, he's been in that role, done a lot of really smart, good work. So it's a little disconcerting to a lot of folks who I've talked to about why they would, one, remove it from an SES role, and two, why would they push Tom out the door? Again, somebody who maybe isn't everyone's friend, but definitely has been uh, well-respected and and, and highly thought of across the community.
1: Yeah, I've spoken to him for a couple of interviews, and he knows his stuff. Do we know where he went?
2: Tom ended up going to the Army's Office of Business Transformation. He's the deputy director there. But what they were trying to do is push him out to San Diego. And again, Tom, this is the second part of the story that you'll find on federalnewsnetwork.com, which is regarding the way they treated Tom and the way they you know, took someone who was an SES, and yes, you can move SESs wherever you want, but it's rare that you say to somebody, you know what, we're going to move you across the country and you don't have a choice. And I think that's part of what many people see this as a punitive approach to, if you will, getting Tom to move to a new job. Now, Tom, you and I have been around long enough to know that you know people don't get along not everyone gets along with their management but there are ways to treat people and and I think what I've learned from my reporting is it it just wasn't done well or right and I think that's part of the story here about how they look at data and they make the importance of data.
1: Right. So not having that specific CDO title in an SES person, I mean, there's a SESALA issue perhaps, but there's also a strategy issue for data centricity, sounds like, for the Navy.
2: You're absolutely right. And this is that's the bigger issue here, Tom, because what's going on is they've had someone, they have a very small chief data officer office. There's only about four people now with six contractors supporting them. But as you know, Tom, data is everything. It's from the Joint All-Domain Command and Control to the JADC project, to Project Overmatch, to a host of other initiatives, including things like creating trustworthy data for the Jupyter platform that then will be moved in, that data will be moved into the Advana platform that goes across all of DoD. So all of those programs will be impacted by having one less person and one less leader in that role. And then there's the usual stuff, Tom, like weekly strategy meetings and data governance boards that all really are important to getting, again, these programs and initiatives down the right path, making sure data is connecting those dots that we always like to talk about. There is no plan, from what I've been told, to backfill Sassala's day-to-day roles and responsibilities. And again, this goes back to Aaron Weiss. He, My understanding is he has not had a plan or does not have a plan to, to address these issues. And now, obviously, he's walking out the door, so he's leaving a lot of this to his uh, principal deputy, Jane Rathbun.
1: Interesting if he ends up with the Army, too, but we don't know that yet. But yeah, I think what you said about JADC2 and jointness in general, it's all data-centric and the ability to fight the wars they see in the future, the whole cloud migration strategy that DOD has been pursuing on 50 different fronts, that all, again, gets around to data. So it is a little bit puzzling. Do we know anything about else about what the, what the Navy is planning on the data front?
2: So the Navy has told me that they, of course, you know, think data is very important. It's a key to their mission areas. It's key to really finding success. None of that is surprising here. They did name Duncan McCaskill, the chief data analytics officer, as the acting CDO. Now, what's interesting about this, Tom, again, I went to Navy more than a month ago with a set of 10 questions. They came back and only answered three of them. Most of those questions were around how we're using data. What's the impact of not having a CDO? And they really didn't, Give me much more than just say it's very important to us, which you kind of expect that. But when I asked about, well, who is the acting CDO? And they said, well, we don't have one, but Duncan McCaskill is going to have the roles and responsibilities of the CDO. Then they came back to me a few days later and said, well, actually, he is the acting CDO after all. But again, McCaskill's not an SES. He's a highly qualified expert. And the Navy told me they have no plans to advertise to fill that SES CDO role either. So again, it's a lot of head scratching about why they're making these decisions now when, again, DOD Deputy Secretary Kathleen Hicks made data one of her top priorities across the entire DOD. Why would you downgrade this CDO role in such a way that leaves more questions than answers
1: and what about industry have you heard any reaction because industry watches these things like you watch a small campfire being nurtured and any little change is important to industry what have you heard reaction wise
2: I've talked to several former DoD folks who've uh, still uh, are close watchers of of the community and one is Terry Halverson the former DoD and Navy CIO he's now vice president for federal client development at IBM and while he fully admits, listen I'm not familiar with this Navy's decision he did say it would be very surprising to cut the CDO at this time. He says, you know, in a big agency, it makes your data efforts definitely harder to get things done. You can lose focus on some of those big efforts. And if we believe data is king and the most valuable resource for any agency, then cutting a position like the CDO would be highly unusual. So again, not, not really surprising what Halverson said, but he did offer kind of a little bit of insights from his role where because, you know, he sat in Aaron Weiss's sure. role at one time. The other thing he said is, is a lot of times, you know, you got to understand where the structure is and how you want to structure your your office. So he said maybe this is just a restructuring and and something else will come out maybe further down the road of how they're going to treat data and how they're going to put someone in charge. But if you don't really have someone who's that belly button to push, you are at a disadvantage to create, again, that data centricity that Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks called for.
1: All right. So Tom Sasala now on the wrong side of the blockchain. And then the other piece of this is the department's handling of that decision. To move Sasala to this new role.
2: Correct. Now they wanted to push him out to NAV war in San Diego, his whole life, his family's here. And they really didn't give him a choice. Now, Tom, for any SES, they can do that, you know, any agency can move any SES anywhere they want. It's just unusual. But this really ties back to and this is what I'm my sources tell me that they told Sasala that you're being moved out because the, the Navy is under congressional mandate, as is all DOD to eliminate the number of SES positions they have. They had to do this by 25% across the board by 2022. And it's one thing to say, okay, Tom, sorry, we're going to eliminate your position. Where do you want to go? And and what I'm told is there were dozens of openings in the national capital region that he potentially could have been put into as an SES. They didn't. They they shipped him off. And in fact, the Naval Information Warfare Systems Command didn't even know he was coming until three hours before he was supposed to actually be there to report. The last thing Tom offer you is the way they treated him. Again, it goes back to they cut off his access to the Pentagon, requiring Sasala to be escorted around the building. They cut off his access to email and share drives. Again, you can make change. You can reorganize your your office the way you see fit. But there are ways to treat people. And Tom, I just I think that is not sure. a good sign for the Navy in terms of how they treated him.
1: All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much.
2: Always a pleasure, Tom.
1: And check out all that detail in his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. In an hour, reporter Alex Lohr joins me to talk about the Army and its recruiting challenges. Still to come, the government's satisfaction index is up, but not what it should be. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The most recent poll of Americans' satisfaction with service they get from the federal government, it's up. But with a score of about 66 out of 100, the American Customer Satisfaction Index is still below pre-pandemic levels. My next guest is the former Index Research Director, now a professor at Michigan State, Forrest Morgeson joins me now. Forrest, good to have you back. Nice to be here. Thank you. So what do we make of this? The fact that it rose 4.6 percent. It's up. It's not up at the peak of about 2018 or 19 was when the satisfaction index reached its most recent peak. It was much better back in the early aught, you might say. So what's going on here?
3: Well, I mean, I think some of it is a natural rebound. Obviously, the government had a difficult time providing services to citizens during the pandemic and the years after that. And I think, you know, very much like the private sector, you saw some negative customer experiences with the government because of that, because of just the load on the system and the different demands that citizens had of the government. I think as that has waned a little bit, I think it's starting to go back to its more normal levels. The government still remains below its pre-COVID levels, as you mentioned, but it's definitely trending in the right direction back to a more normal level.
1: Because if you look at the trend of the yearly scores from 99, it looks like if you used a French curve to kind of even it all out, it's a very slight downward trend in the past 24, 25 years or so, but not really a crash but it's trending slightly down on average, so yeah. it doesn't seem like yearly events drive it that much. I mean, they do drive it that much, but there's a slow decline over 20 years.
3: Yeah, I mean, big shocks are going to drive any index like this down where you have you know really dramatic events that change the way – services can be provided and customers or citizens can experience those services. We have seen that sort of slight gradual decline that's probably due to some extent with the government remaining relatively static in how it's delivering its services and huge sea changes in how the private sector is delivering its services. So comparatively speaking, the government's still running on a 1.0 model in a lot of ways, whereas the private sector is 2.0.
1: And I hate to tiptoe into this, what amounts to a grid of third rails, you can get electrocuted very easily. But does the political situation have anything to do with the customer satisfaction index? People hate this president, they hate that president, half the country hates whoever's in office at a given moment. But does that affect the index?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that we've certainly looked at. And there does tend to be in this data, what we can call a president in power effect, where we're not measuring... Politics here. We're measuring the quality of services delivered by the federal government, just like we do in the private sector. Nevertheless, when you've got a change in presidential administration and therefore a change in something like 35% of the American people love versus hate, you know, the other 30% are neutral, you do see some predictable movement there. In other words, when one party's resident takes office having been out of power they tend to get a little bit more satisfied with what they're experiencing and we would expect this right we wouldn't want it to be entirely driven by this but of course there is that perception that who's running the government is going to provide me the services as i want them to whether that's you know broad policy based issues
1: like how i'm going to get taxed and how i'm going to do
3: those sorts of things so yeah we do see some of that
1: all right and just by point of reference the customer satisfaction index with the federal government fluctuates. The lowest point in recent years was the index of 63.9. The highest was 72.3 back in '06. So there's a range there, 64 to 72, let's say. How does that compare with the best of industry and the worst?
3: Well, you know, it compares favorably to the worst of industry. Unfortunately, the worst of industry are your cable television companies, your Internet service providers, industries that we don't think of as being particularly strong. The federal government does score above those kinds of industries. Unfortunately, it's well below, in some cases, 20 points or more, the best of the private sector in terms of those companies that are offering services and products that we really, really love. Our Amazons, our Googles, our Apple, um, those kinds of companies tend to score in the mid to even upper 80s over time. And so, you know, there's quite a gap there between the best of the private sector and, and what we're getting from federal government.
1: We're speaking with Forrest Morgeson. He's a professor of marketing at Michigan State University and former research director of the American Customer Satisfaction Index. And looking at the department-by-department department index scores for last year, I think Interior is always at the top of the list with a 75 index versus the average, again, of 66. And that's probably because of the National Park Service, which a lot of people avail online and have for many years. And at the bottom is, of course, Treasury and we know how IRS agency itself admits it just couldn't answer the phones, you know, in the last tax filing season and so forth, paper built up, et cetera, et cetera. So what do we make of, like, say, an agriculture, which did really well right under Interior and HUD, which the average person doesn't really deal with, is just above Treasury, pretty low?
3: Yeah. I mean, most of the people that are going to HUD are doing it for some kind of paperwork for financial assistance for housing or something like that. And those processes, as we all know, generally are not particularly efficient, not particularly easy to complete, and therefore they're a burden for citizens and they get low scores. Agriculture, a lot of that is going to be, you know, in terms of the citizen facing role of that agency. A lot of that is going to be people that are simply receiving food stamps from the Department of Agriculture, and and that's a relatively, relatively low burden activity that has a benefit at the end of it. You know, you mentioned IRS, which is perennially our laggard in citizen satisfaction. Virtually every single year that we've been doing this, it comes in at the bottom, and you want to be fair, right? Obviously, I think most of us could agree that IRS could do a better job providing the services that they offer, or at least picking up the phone, as you said The reality is, though, is that they have a constrained budget and they have a mission that by its nature is not going to ever be particularly satisfying, right? Taxation and the taking of money from citizens is never going to be particularly satisfying. So the goal is to try to, in some cases, take what are inherently dissatisfying experiences and make them as efficient and satisfying as you possibly can.
1: Because if you look at, you know, who interacts with government, in some ways, the federal government is the provider of last resort with the SNAP program at agriculture, unemployment insurance from labor, Social Security and disability payments, housing assistance, as you mentioned. So I wonder if the survey should be skewed in terms of the sample and get people that are maybe not as wealthy or at the poorer end of the socioeconomic scale who tend to be the ones most accessing government. Because all the wealthy, well-off people try to stay away as much as they can.
3: That's an interesting point. The reality, though, is, of course, our broader goal at ACSI is to try to capture as much of the economic picture as we can. In terms of what government's offering, you know, that's going to cover the whole spectrum. The Postal Service all the way down to IRS, which virtually everyone has to interact with at some level. So we want to capture that as much as we can. You're right, though. I mean, there are different ways of defining who is really interacting with the government and how they're doing so. Do we count total number of people? Do we count, you know, in the private sector, we're really geared towards those companies that are bigger, right, that have more revenue. And so there's sort of a wealth dimension there. And we can't do something exactly the same in the federal government. But it's an interesting question. How do we consider these different groups of citizens that are interacting with the government? How do we accurately measure their experiences?
1: And a detailed question on the index survey itself, Veterans Affairs is not listed, and the Postal Service is not listed
3: we measure the postal service separately and there's a pragmatic reason for doing that first of all we can compare it to fedex and ups and those kinds of things as a personal delivery company in the private sector. And so we do that separately. The other reason is, of course, if we include that in our federal government sample, everyone will say, yes, I've experienced the U.S. Postal Service and we'll, we won't get any interviews anywhere else. So we want to try to keep it a little bit broader and keep it spread out a little bit more. So that's why you don't see that in there. The other, you know, you, you mentioned the Veterans Affairs, we simply allow respondents to tell us what they've interacted with from the federal government and then our samples are driven by that. If we don't have enough sample, we won't include it. And so while well, you've got a lot of veterans, you know, going through the Veterans Health Administration, Veterans Affairs in general, we don't have a ton of respondents for that. And therefore, we don't produce a score.
1: And do any of the agencies ever react to the index operators? Do they ever Do you hear back from them?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, our, our data has been used a few times in congressional testimony about the performance of government in general here in the United States. We know that these agencies by law are mandated to go in and do this kind of research either on their own or hire someone outside through the GIPRA and the GPRMA updates uh, about a decade ago. They've got to go out and do this kind of research. So they look at either our data or data like ours, to try to better understand how citizens perceive the job that they're doing, the work that they're doing, and how they can improve that.
1: Forrest Morgeson is a professor at Michigan State University, former research director to the American Customer Satisfaction Index. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. It's been great. And we'll post this interview and a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the contractor carbon emissions reporting rule is it's setting up some companies for failure. But first, stop us if you've heard this before. The IRS has modernizing problems. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temmin here on Federal News Network. No matter what it does, the IRS always seems to be saddled with outdated information technology systems. At the moment, a third of its applications are considered legacy, and that's according to the Government Accountability Office. The agency is running 21 modernization projects, but the GAO found problems with how those are going. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues, Dave Hinchman. Dave, good to have you back.
4: Tom, thanks for having me today.
1: I want to start with a detail in the report, and then we'll back out to some of the larger picture here. But they have suspended their work on the master file system, which is the absolute hard nugget core of the modernization effort they need to do. They have tried to do this time and time and time again. Why have they pulled back from that essential task?
4: Well, I think that's a really important point from what we found, Tom, you know, the individual master file, as you point out, is IRS's authoritative data source for individual tax count data. It's where your tax files are kept. It's where mine are kept. And it is now about 60 years old. The original system was built when the Apollo moon projects were still uh, the Apollo moon shots were still happening. And while they've moved the existing computer code onto modern platforms, it's still written in COBOL, which is a computer language that isn't even taught in schools anymore. IRS recognizes this. They've been trying to modernize the program for a number of years, at least over a decade. And there are several aspects to that modernization. And recently, we found that two of those specifically, which was the customer account data engine, which is a huge part of replacing the IMF, as well as another part of the modernization fund were suspended because IRS at the agency level decided to reprogram the funds that had been designated for those two efforts. We were not given a reason why that was, and the CIO's office was currently working to investigate what other options they had for continuing those efforts.
1: Yeah, that cade goes back, I think your report says at least 10 years. I would say it's about 25 years, actually, from my experience. And well, let's let's get to the bigger picture here. Your report says there are 21 modernization plans going on. Most of them seem to be compliant to what is required of a modernization effort, but not all of them are.
4: No, yeah, we when we look at modernization plans for legacy IT, there are three things that we look for. One is, you know, does the plan have the milestones necessary to complete the effort? Does it does the plan have a description of what's necessary to modernize the system and thirdly are there details about how the agency plans to dispose of the legacy it that's being replaced and when we looked at the 21 plans there were nine of those 21 apply to legacy the other ones are actually just new development they're going to help modernize the irs's it infrastructure but of those nine legacy modernization plans three of them were complete that all three of those elements look we were looking for but the other six none of them discussed what they were going to do with their legacy it and that's not necessarily a bad thing irs said that you know they were going to address that as they got later into the life cycle but i think you know i would argue that until those plans are complete there's reason to be concerned about the lack of accountability for completing that key element it's too easy for personnel to turn over or for things to get shoved aside and forgotten, and, you know, I think that even if it was just a commitment that we will decide how to dispose of legacy IT by this specific date would be an important commitment to make.
1: And what do you mean of by dispose of legacy? I mean, if it's old computer code, there's nothing really to dispose of
4: this also applies to hardware. Uh, And, you know, I think one of the things we talk about is the amount of legacy hardware that IRS has in their IT infrastructure. It's not a huge amount. It's not an abnormal amount, but I think that those actual physical things that are taking up space in a data center or a computer closet are important aspects of ensuring that you've thought through your modernization effort and what it's going to take to bring all of your infrastructure into Modern times with modern equipment and modern software.
1: Right. I mean, you can have a contractor say, We'll recycle it or something. That could be part of the plan.
4: Absolutely. But there just needs to be, you need to have a sense for what you're going to do with it.
1: And did you get the sense, though, that there is a vision for what a modernized IRS will look like on the part of the CIO and the staff? And really, it's the CIO is only part of the picture here. I mean, the agency head and the different division owners really need to have the same vision too, don't they?
4: Oh, sure. This, you know, a a thorough modernization effort stretches across the organization. Everyone's involved from, you know, in the case of the IRS, the commissioner, down to the CIO, as well as the other heads of other units within the agency. And I think when you look at the scope of the 21 modernization initiatives that we looked at, uh, and then our report details all 21 of those, I think you get a real sense that they're looking across the organization holistically so not just at sort of the very IT driven stuff um, but also looking at how they can expand into cloud how they can improve assistance to customers as well as other aspects of IRS's
1: operations. We're speaking with Dave Hinchman, Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the GAO. And on that cloud question, they have made progress toward the cloud. And You said they have fulfilled most of the OMB requirements, the White House requirements for doing cloud computing. But that gets back to some of these older technology systems that use COBOL. And actually, I think the master file is assembler, not even COBOL. And those are pretty hard to move to the cloud because of the way they work and you need a lot of work to get them to operate in the cloud and it may not be worth heaving them up there because it's still the same old yeah. code.
4: So I think that something like the IMF, I'm not sure that would ever go to the cloud. I think that, you know, as you pointed out that that is a complex application. And depending on how they're looking at bringing in Cade to replace IMF, and what options there were, that could also be for security purposes. They could decide not to move it into the cloud. And I think as long as there's a well thought out business decision made and documented about about that, that's a reasonable approach. Uh, meanwhile, they there are lots of other cloud efforts that they're looking at underway. You know, one thing that they looked at, uh, you mentioned they've implement a lot of the OMB cloud requirements, which is great, that's what we want to see. But they've also done a lot of business value assessment of their cloud efforts. And I think that that is starting to show some of the benefits that IRS is beginning to realize. For instance, they looked at 53 applications that were going to be moved into the cloud in fiscal year 22, and they found that of those 50, we're going to provide moderate to high value overall from the benefits they were gonna realize from the cloud. And that came under financial benefits, business benefits, as well as minimizing enterprise risk. So they found things like immediate cost avoidance, reduction in future costs, so downstream from managing applications, contributing to advancing IRS's sort of long-term vision about what they're gonna look like in the cloud, and as I pointed out, reducing the risk that was presented by Access to those applications.
1: And I want to comment or ask you to comment on table five, which I think says a lot. And if anyone looks wants to look at the long-form report, it's on page 25. But if you look at the actual start date of different projects and cl- planned completion dates, some of them look normal in the course of how federal government operates. The cloud execution program, actual start date December 2018, planned completion date December 2022. We passed that date. But you said they've done a lot of, they've done a lot of work there. Customer account data engine Cade 2 transition started in 2010, maybe finished in 2024. Some of them even go back before that. My question, I guess, is will the Cade ever be done? Will the master file system ever be done? Or should they say, you know what, we can run assembler for another 25 or 30 or 40 years if the Air Force can run a B-52 for 100 years?
4: Well, I, I think the, the second approach you, you detail is probably not realistic. You know, increasingly it's harder to find people who can manage the code that, you know, powers these these older systems. Those, you know, languages aren't taught in school, and so the number of people who have skills in those languages are increasingly smaller number every year and as a consequence are more expensive to hire the the problems with cade are certainly longstanding. we don't completely understand all of them yet we haven't had a chance to do a deep dive into something like that but i think that the most recent date was that irs was saying that k2 was going to replace imf by 2030 however the you know we mentioned the pause in the projects Uh, That's one of them. And so now the impact that's going to have on the IMF replacement date is still TBD. But we've just started new work, as we do as part of the, the IRS's annual appropriation. We're asked to go in and look at some of their major systems applications and progress being made in terms of their business systems modernization. And so I'm sure we'll be examining that issue as part of that
1: work. Right. And you made nine recommendations, and pretty much the IRS reacted how to those?
4: They agreed with all of them. Our recommendations for this report were primarily focused about completing those elements of the modernization plans that we thought we were missing and all we really asked them to do is commit to a timeline for when they were going to complete those plans because i think it's important to give them a chance to especially for you know resolving the disposition of those legacy it assets to give them a chance to really look at the issue and make sure that they're making good decisions that make good business sense and so all we asked them to do was to agree to a timeline for when they were going to do that and they agreed to those recommendations
1: maybe they could get together with the National Science Foundation and start a University of COBOL or something.
4: Well certainly the, the longer that IMF uh, sticks around Um, running on these older languages, the greater the need for
1: something like that is. Dave Hinchman is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview together with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Modernize your listening. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the contractor carbon emissions reporting rule is at setting up some companies for failure. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammin here on Federal News Network. Federal contractors are reacting to a couple of rules coming from the Biden administration. One requires them to report so-called greenhouse gas emissions. Another lets lower-tier subcontracting count towards prime small business goals. There are complications, though, as we hear from Stephanie Castro, executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. And Stephanie, why don't we start with the rule on credit for lower-tier subcontracting? Comments have closed on that. What's it all about, and what did the council say about it?
5: Well, as always, thanks so much, Tom, for having me. And this is something that strikes very close to home for a lot of small businesses and the prime contractors that partner with them or use them as subcontractors. This proposed rule came out of the Small Business Administration as a response to something that happened in the defense bill that was passed a couple of years ago in fiscal year 2020. And this was to mandate that prime contractors can apply credit for subcontracting with small businesses at lower tiers. One of the issues that we find in implementation of something like this is that without privity of contract, prime contractors, you know, they have contracts with their immediate subcontractors, but they don't have contracts with the ones at lower tiers. And so, it's really hard to get information or data from someone you don't have a contract with. And so we've highlighted several issues with this proposed rule. We are supportive of claiming credit for small business subcontracting. I think that helps the small business base. It helps encourage large businesses to work with small businesses. But there are some implementation concerns we have here.
1: So in other words, if I build a, I'm just making this up, a radio that goes inside an airplane and that subcontractor, Builds the case for the radio, it may go out and subcontract for the knobs on the front. And so I should get credit for the value of the knobs towards my prime dollars, but I don't have privy to the contract for the knobs that my case sub makes with that knob maker, the lower tier.
5: That is a good example. I would say, you know, the Biden-Harris administration has put a tremendous emphasis on utilization of small businesses and whether those are historically underserved communities or other kinds of set asides, just small businesses in general are receiving a lot of love from the Biden-Harris administration. The problem that we face in a rule like this is because the prime contractors don't have insight into third tier, fourth tier, fifth tier suppliers or subs. And in many cases, those small businesses that are providing the knobs, in your example, might not be accustomed to tracking the kind of information the government wants, or, or certainly they might be reluctant to hand it off to a company they don't have a contract with. So there are some implementation hiccups in the proposed rule. And we are trying to work very closely with the Small Business Administration to help address those,
1: right? Because there's really no limit to how far deep you can go in the supply chain or the string of contractors, and you probably get diminishing returns. Say the knob maker has a subcontractor for the set screws on the knob, and I know the people are saying, "Are you kidding? Radios all have touchscreens; they don't have knobs anymore." But then the <laughs> I maker was
5: just thinking that.
1: <laughs> but then the the maker of the set screw has someone he buys metal from, you know, metal rod. Right. Exactly. exactly. Somebody refines that metal, etc. Right. And the metal rod producer buys ore and so forth. There's no end to it.
5: (laughs) There is also the question within this proposed rule of how much information is enough? How much does the prime contractor have to substantiate? the information it receives. Does it have to go out and certify or verify or, you know, otherwise make sure that the information is correct? And so, again, a lot of room for movement here. I would say that this dates back to another defense bill back in 2014. And this is not the first go that the SBA has had at an issue like this. The fact that it's 2023 and we're talking about something that sort of originated back in 2014 shows how difficult this can be.
1: Right. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Besides, there's a little bit of play in there anyhow because most of the contractors and the government are exceeding the statutory small business goals anyway. So you know, how much do you need to claw back the next 0.5 percent or 0.025 percent? for the uh, set screw on the knob, I guess. That'll be our watchword here. And let's get to the sort of the bigger gorilla (laughs) in the room, and that is this greenhouse gas emissions. There's a twist in here with respect to the relationship with the government that makes it complicated. Tell us about that one.
5: So this is an issue also that the Biden-Harris administration takes very, very seriously, and that is disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions and having companies set targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And all of this is towards an eye toward either – mitigating or at least preventing some element of climate change. That said, the administration is working with the Securities and Exchange Commission on commercial companies. This proposed rule came out, luckily we got an extension because there's a lot to unpack here. We got an additional month to comment on it and I think industry used that and the public used that additional time really well. The wrinkle that you mentioned is something that I've talked about with lawyers and I would say that you know. (laughs) psc professional services council does not offer legal or accounting advice that said we highlight policy issues and one of the policy issues that we've come across here is there's something called scope three emissions and scope three emissions for a company are those emissions from the end user and other i'll say adjacent entities right those who use your products and i think the end of the day the government for government contractors is that end user there doesn't seem to be sufficient or really any at all information in this proposed rule about how the government is going to report its greenhouse gas emissions to the contractor who is required to collect and disclose end-user greenhouse gas emissions. So this is really not necessarily a do loop, but it is a complication where you might have the Department of Defense or military service needing to report its greenhouse gas emissions to a contractor who then has to report it back to the government and depending on where you're operating, depending on what you're doing with the capabilities contractors providing, could actually provide national security information that is then disclosed publicly. And so I think at the end of the day, the administration needs to give a lot of thought to how this reporting structure will work and what the government's role is in it.
1: Sure. And notwithstanding the fact that you don't have any control over a customer's emissions, even if you could find out what they are, it's going to vary all over the place. In other words, if you sell services to the Capitol Hill power plant factory, I don't know what burns there, but they still have smokestacks to create steam for the Capitol. That's one thing. And if it's just a agency that occupies half of a floor of a building and it's just people coming and going, that's a whole different greenhouse gas deal. And there might be different reporting by the government itself. We just don't know yet.
5: I think that's true. And I think also, if you think about how much of work goes overseas... So not just foreign military sales, who's the end customer, who's the end user there? Is the government of name a country who receives military equipment really going to report back to the contractor their greenhouse gas emissions? I mean, it really is. Something that deserves a lot of thought uh, going forward. And I really hope that the recipient, you know, it's the FAR Council who received these comments, take that into consideration. It's a lot to wrap your head around, and I'm not entirely sure that there's an easy way forward.
1: Sure. And Lord help the contractor who sells fuel to the military burn pits, then you'd be wrapped up in CO2 gas for decades.
5: Science-based targets may look a little different for that company than others.
1: Sure. And this week marks a year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and a lot of your member companies have been involved in helping the Ukraine effort. Maybe just a quick top-line rundown there.
5: Yeah. So February 24th is the anniversary date. And we always hesitate to call it an anniversary date because it makes it seem like a happy occasion. But on February 24th, 2022 is when Russia invaded Ukraine. And we have pulsed our members. Now, when you think about U.S. assistance to a country like Ukraine, a lot of times you'll hear about Gimlers, HIMARS, Javelins, etc., military equipment. Our member companies are services companies, and we wanted to really unpack what they've been doing You know, not only with the United States government, but for the benefit of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people. And I would like to give you a couple of examples. We're releasing a compendium of examples of this. But, you know, the day that the invasion occurred, there was a member company that was literally talking to the Ukrainian government, signing a contract and moving all of the government's critical data to the cloud so that the Russians couldn't block it or otherwise manipulate it. We had companies that used state department programs to deliver medical supplies, tactical equipment, PPE, it's logistics piece of it, not necessarily just the equipment. We had companies that were monitoring refugee needs in neighboring countries, whether they were Moldova, Poland, or elsewhere, studying and reporting on civic shifts in Ukrainian society. You know, a lot of times in the last 12 months, we've been hearing how strong and resilient civil society is in Ukraine. You know, you've know, you got grassroots organizations popping up to move people, to help people internal to Ukraine. and PSC member companies have been on the forefront of that. And the last thing I wanted to mention is, you know, we have the specter of Russia and its chokehold on Europe regarding energy. And, you know, we've seen that so often in the headlines online about how they threatened to cut off supplies. So we've had member companies, the services they provide through U.S. Agency for International Development are to provide hot water, power, heat to the Ukrainian people through generators and repairing the infrastructure. So, you know, as we mark this one year occasion of the Russian invasion, you know, it's amazing how much the Ukrainian people have been able to do. And I'm just so pleased with the support that U.S. companies have been able to provide to help them through it.
1: Stephanie Castro is executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much.
5: Thanks, Tom, for having me.
1: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork dot slash federal drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Army faces its biggest recruiting challenge in the last fifty years. For fiscal 2022, it missed its target by about 10,000 recruits, with projections of even lower total numbers for this year. For a look into why those numbers keep going down, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, And what do they say, Alexandra, is the basic reason they're just not getting the bodies they need to fill their recruitment
0: goals? So the Army Training and Doctrine Command, that's TRADOC, held a recent webinar on Facebook just to talk about this issue, to look at some of the numbers. They finished up last year with four hundred and sixty six thousand active duty soldiers. They were budgeted for four hundred and seventy three thousand. So they really fell short. And by the end of fiscal year 2023, they're looking to be down as low as possibly 445,000 soldiers. So one of the things they're seeing is that there's a shrinking pool of eligible recruits. And TRADOC is a training command, so they're looking to the future. They're looking at what the Army's going to look like in 2030. They're looking at what the Army's going to look like in 2040. And they found a couple of reasons. One of them was that the, they actually have a smaller demographic pool. Rachel Melling is an intelligence analyst for TRADOC, and she looked at that. Within those
6: demographic changes, there's multiple variables, Um, the first being just the changing availability of potential recruits. So in the future, we're just going to see a smaller recruiting pool. Um, There's a much lower birth rate um, currently, and that birth rate has been declining since about 2007. And with the low birth rate after the 2008 recession, we're going to see a much smaller high school graduation rate in about tw- starting in 2030.
1: Right. And the irony there is that many, many immigrants come to the United States and are glad to serve in the armed services. And I guess they're looking there, too. But there are other issues, too, that they're seeing. There's too many people that may have... Drug abuse in their past, or they might have weight or health physical problems. What else do they say?
0: All of those things are true, Tom. Uh, they do have problems with weight and fitness issues and drug use. And the Army's tried to do some waivers for some of those things. If you're a little overweight, they'll waiver you in any way. Uh, if you're fitness problems, they might ask you to come back. Drug use, there's even been a program where they'll let you retest if they don't think it's a big problem, but you have to be clean on the drug test after that. And uh, then there are other issues too. Uh, For ROTC, only 39 percent of the students are actually eligible to participate. And that's a big pull because they'll pay your tuition with ROTC. The other issue is declining propensity to serve. The Army currently figures only 9 percent of the population wants to serve in the Army. And that number has been going down since 2001 2001 kind of makes sense it was 9 11 the trade towers everyone wanted to serve then but it keeps going down since then uh, the culture of serving in the military really changed since world war Two. and at that point people came back and everyone had a family member in the military now that the population that actually has family members that serve is smaller and more isolated uh, rachel talks about that too and with less than 1%
6: of U.S. adults serving in the military. There's a lack of familiarity with the military. Um, And all of those things really work together to kind of foster that civilian and military gap that we're seeing today.
1: All right. And none of these problems popped up last month. I mean, these are long-term trends. So what are they doing about it? And who are they targeting now to get those numbers they need, Alexandra? Alexandra?
0: So that's kind of interesting because you've heard of millennials and you've heard of Generation X and Generation Z. Well, the Army is looking at Generation Alpha. That's the generation who would potentially serve in the Army of 2030. And they are currently sixth graders and seventh graders. And the way the army's looking at them is something called a segmented in information environment. And it's how they get their information and what kind of information they get on the Internet. Uh, here's Rachel Melling. And they're in a segmented information environment.
6: You can't really get your information from one place anymore. It's all segmented. There's many different platforms and medias that these um, younger generations are interacting on. And those are really fostering those cultural influences that are influencing their perceptions of the army and the military and the government. Um, So that's a neat opportunity for the army to to interact with these younger generations earlier to kind of help shape their ideas.
1: Interesting that she would say that while having a meeting on Facebook, which is kind of a millennial, late boomerish kind of platform, whereas Instagram and things I don't even know about are what the X, Y, Z, and Alpha, little cat ABC, are actually on these days, and it ain't Facebook.
0: You're so right about that that she should be on Snapchat or something talking about it. Um, And there are other issues, too, that they have to look at. Um, Like everyone, they have to compete for talent in the labor market. And there's a, a shrinking recruit pool that private industry is also looking for. And private industry can pay more. They're offering flexible work environments, which the army really can't do. And then they're also offering good benefits, which competes with the benefits that the Army offers.
1: Plus, they also have competition with the other armed services, too. That's an issue. And some of them have better toys in the Army. So the question is, do they have a plan? Do they have a strategy for solving this?
0: Well, they're doing a whole lot of things. Uh, One of the things they're doing is encouraging current service members to refer people. And they actually give out a, a recruitment ribbon if you recruit enough people through referrals, and then they're trying to promote their technical specialties, like, say, cybersecurity. You can join the Army. You can become a cybersecurity specialist. And that has value in and of itself. And then they've been running these camps to try and get potential recruits up to speed on fitness and academic abilities so they qualify to be in the Army. The program is called Future Soldier Program, and it started last July. They're running it at Fort Jackson and Fort Benning. Lieutenant General Maria Gervais serves as Deputy Commanding General at Tradoc, and she's thinking this program is working pretty well. You know what we've seen is those that have come in, and we needed to focus on the fitness component. Quite frankly, they were,
5: you know, they are losing the the weight and the body fat necessary because they do not proceed their basic combat training until they have met the standard. So we're seeing that within the first three weeks, they're meeting the standard going into BCT. And then on the academic uh, side of the house, within the first three weeks, we have 78 percent of those uh, young men and women that are improving their test score in at least one
0: category.
1: Yeah, at that age, it's easy to let it melt off if you just take the right steps. So there is some encouraging news there then.
0: Yeah, she said actually after an, a second set of three weeks, they're up to 98% per improving on their test scores. And she says that's showing a lot of success. Recruits are able to pass their both tests and go into the army. They're able to pass the physical fitness test. And the other part is the armed services vocational aptitude battery, which is the academic part that they need to pass. And she says once they get in, they're pretty happy about it and there isn't a whole lot of attrition.
1: All right, so the main thing is getting them to come to the Army Recruitment Command in the first place, and then they can make the case, it sounds like.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one funny thing that she said is that um, a lot of people are, are moving out west, which makes them harder to reach for the Army. If they stay on the East Coast, they can kind of get at them. But once they move, that's been another recruiting issue for them.
1: Wow. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Tamman.